The Secret Church Podcast is a resource from Radical.net. For The Secret Church 12 study guide and other resources that go along with this audio, visit Radical.net slash SC12. This is Secret Church 12, Episode 3. Okay, we're going to jump back in. I know that people here and, and other places might still be filing in, but uh, in case you haven't noticed, we got pretty good ways to go. So we're going to jump right in to historical books. Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings, 1st, 2nd Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. What do these books teach us about suffering? See in Joshua and Judges, a picture of fear and judgment. From the very beginning of Joshua, an exhortation amidst fear. Joshua's preparing to lead the people into the promised land. And God speaks to him and tells him to trust divine promises. The Lord, your God, will lay the fear of you and the dread of you on all the land that you shall tread, as he promised you. God had given them the land. God had guaranteed them the land. It was theirs to take. So God said, take it. Follow divine commands. Joshua 1, don't let the book of the law depart from your mouth. God's word must be in our minds. God's word must be in our mouths. Depend on divine presence. I love Joshua 1. From the perspective of the world, Joshua should have been scared to death. With the presence of God, Joshua could be sure of victory. Don't be afraid. Live for divine glory. Put away the gods. Your father served beyond the river in Egypt and serve the Lord. Part of the point of Joshua is to show us that God orchestrates the events of his people for the display of his glory. God sometimes puts his people in difficult circumstances that elicit fear in the world in order to demonstrate his power and his faithfulness to his promises and his glory and his supreme glory. Exhortation amidst fear. Demonstration of judges. Joshua and Judges both make clear that God judges individuals. I put Joshua 6 and 7 here, the story of Achan, Israelite soldier who kept some of the plunder from war that that God had said not to keep. And one individual's sin harmed the entire people of God. Very next thing that happened after that, because of Achan, this individual soldier's one sin, the next battle was lost and 36 Israelites died in the hands of a much smaller army. One individual sin forfeits the favorable presence of God. God had said over and over again, I will be with you. But then you get down to Joshua chapter 7 verse 12 and God says, I will be with you no more unless you destroy these devoted things from among you. One individual sin forfeits the favorable presence of God. One individual sin brings dishonor on the glory of God, Joshua 7, 9. And one individual sin warrants the swift and just wrath of God. When it's discovered what Achan had done, Achan and his entire family are stoned. God judges individuals. Do not underestimate the effect of one sin in bringing about suffering. God judges pagan nations. God had pronounced curses on pagan nations in Deuteronomy chapter 20. And as we see these nations, we realize that for some time, God demonstrates his patience toward undeserving sinners. That's what we see him promising in Genesis 15. God was delaying his wrath toward the nations until an appointed time. God is patient, Ezekiel 36 says. He has no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but he calls them to turn and live. But when they don't, in due time, God doles out his judgment on deserving sinners, much like we saw in Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 18. We see God judging pagan nations all over the book of Joshua and Judges, and we also see God judging his people when they disobey him. The entire book of Judges involves a pattern, A pattern that starts with relapse. God's people turn from his commandments. That leads to ruin. They experience judgment. Then leads to repentance. They turn from their sin and God forgives them. That leads to restoration and then rest. Then it starts all over again. And the problem is that God's people were illustrating man's depravity, man's sinfulness. See the core of their sin. Blatant idolatry. 
The people of God, Israel, did again what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Asterisks, the gods of Syria, Sidon, Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, Philistines. They forsook the Lord and did not serve Him. And the consequence of their sin, idolatry, was rampant immorality. Some of the most wicked, heinous stories in all the Bible happened in the book of Judges. Judges 19 being one of them. Indescribable evil, wickedness, all because they had turned from God. James Montgomery Boyce said, no people ever rise higher than their idea of God. And conversely, a loss of the sense of God's high and awesome character always involves a loss of people's moral values and even what we commonly call humanity. They illustrated man's depravity and they needed God's deliverance. More specifically, they needed a deliverer. They needed God's deliverance. They needed someone to rescue them from divine judgment. They needed someone to show them divine mercy. And that's how the book of Judges ends with the people of God doing what was right in their own eyes, utterly wicked, desperately in need of ultimate deliverance, in need of someone to show them divine mercy. Now, in the middle of that time, spanning the period of Joshua and Judges, we have the story of Ruth, one of my favorite books in the Bible, The Sovereign Mystery of Surprising Mercy. So here's the setting, two places, a land of promise, Bethlehem, known as the House of Bread, part of the promised land, and then you had a land of compromise, Moab, a land where a man named Elimelech takes his family to take his, take his family to in amidst a famine in Bethlehem. Moab was a cursed land. The origin of the Moabites went all the way back to the time when Lot had an incestuous relationship with his daughter in Genesis 19. The Moabites were an outcast people who worshipped foreign gods. Moabite women had seduced Jewish men into sexual immorality and adultery. And that led to the killing of 24,000 different Israelites. So you got Moab, a land of compromise. The story revolves around two people. A woman with honest hurt, Naomi, the wife of Elimelech. When she and her husband and her two sons got to Moab, her sons married Moabite, cursed women, and then her two sons and her husband died. And Naomi was left with two Moabite daughters-in-law and nothing else to her name. Neither of her daughters-in-law had children that could provide for their family in the days of head, so their names were destined to die with themselves. So when Naomi decides to come back to Bethlehem and she gets there, she says to the people, they say, hey, Naomi, she says, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, which means bitter, because this God has dealt bitterly with me. He's brought calamity upon me. Do you ever feel like that? Do you ever feel like the providence of God has been hard on you? And you wonder if you can't take it anymore? A woman with honest hurt. And beside her on that return is Ruth, a woman with humble devotion, who commits to stay with Naomi and follow Naomi's, Naomi's God. Now, as they come to Bethlehem, they have two primary points of need. They were in need of food, and they were in need of family. They had no one to provide for them. Now, behind all of this, in the first chapter of the book, of the book of Ruth, we see two pictures of God. We see that God is great. Naomi calls God the Almighty. Naomi knows that God is all-powerful. At the same time, we see in Ruth chapter 1 that God is good. First glimmer of hope in the book of Ruth is in verse 6, where we find that the Lord, Yahweh, has provided food for his people in Bethlehem. So we know that behind the scenes of Naomi's bitterness, God is great and God is good. And we see this one promise from the start of the book. Mark it down, Ruth chapter 1. In God's sovereign design, he ordains sorrowful tragedy to set the stage for surprising triumph. There are times when we think God is far for us, from us. In this story, every one of our lives... We're surrounded by famine when we long for we don't have what we know we need. When everything seems foreign, maybe you find yourself at a new place physically, emotionally, relationally, spiritually, and you're not sure how you got there, but it's not what you planned. When death strikes and the pain just won't seem to go away. Maybe it was a short time ago, maybe a long time ago. Maybe it was expected, maybe it wasn't. When despair sinks in, we're not sure if we can go on in our current circumstances. You feel like sometimes there's no way out amidst loneliness when no one else even those who love you really seem to understand. Maybe it feels like there's not even anyone who is there to love you. I mean, it's barrenness. The pain I know that many 
many couples struggle with wanting children, desiring children, wanting a family, and struggling to understand why you have that kind of deep desire for a child and God's not answering it. In our grief, when we hurt, when we cry, when we wrestle, in our shame, when the things we struggle with may, may not be proud of, there might be things you're struggling with that either people don't understand or maybe they even look down upon and all those things. I don't want to be overly depressing here, but these things are real. When we get, in, when we get the diagnosis from the doctor or we sign the papers ending a marriage or we hear the news in our family, when our job is gone or the house is taken away or the bottom line can't be met anymore, whatever it is, we wonder, is God really near in all of this? This is where we must realize that even when, even when we think God is farthest from us, here's the promise. God will show himself faithful to us. There's a delicate touch of hope at the end of this chapter. Verse 22, Naomi and the Moabites came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. And Naomi has no idea what that's about to mean. She's saying, I'm empty, but here's the reality. Standing next to her in the person of Ruth is fullness from God. And God is about to weave together the story of all stories to show his gracious and unfathomable blessing toward Naomi. And he's going to do it through Ruth, the Moabitess. Don't miss this, brother or sister. When God seems farthest from you, he actually may be laying the foundations for his, the greatest display of his faithfulness to you. This is why we named our daughter, whom we adopted from China a couple months ago, Mara Ruth. This is Heather and I's story, waiting, children, waiting for children for years, God not providing. The way we wanted, wondering why not. Who knew that God, in withholding a child from us, was setting the stage for our first son to be from Kazakhstan, then our second son, and now our daughter from China. I look around my table, and I see the blessing of God in a way I never could have imagined eight years ago in the middle of hurt and pain and tearful nights with my wife. And it's our little girl's story, abandoned at birth, left outside the gate of an orphanage in a brown paper box. What looked like tragedy, God was setting the stage for surprising triumph to bring her into a family to love her and care for her and point her to the Father, to the fatherless on high. So, back to Ruth, stage set for the Redeemer to come on the scene in, in chapter 2, the portrait of a kinsman Redeemer. One morning, Ruth goes out in search of food. She just happens to get in the field of Boaz. The knight in shining armor enters the scene. She starts to glean with other beggars in the field. And as she's doing that, Ruth, too, says, Boaz walks up at that moment. Now, guys, I don't know if you've ever watched a romantic movie with your wife. One of those love stories that things start happening that are so unrealistic. They're coming together and you're thinking, this is absurd. Life never happens this way. And right when you're about to say something sarcastic, you look over at your wife next to you and she's in tears. She's engrossed in the romance. And you think, ah, you're buying this? I mean, give me a break. I, I, that's never happened to me. I've just heard from other guys that that's happened. So, when you come to Ruth 2, you see the sovereign hand of God directing this man to this woman. He walks on the scene and says, Who is that? That's Hebrew for check her out. And as Boaz finds out who she is, that he, she has no family to take care of her, he starts to seek her as her own family. He seeks the outcast as his family. He tells her to stay in his field, glean there as much as he wants. She wants. She'll be safe in his care. He shelters the weak under his wings. And then in a wonderful scene, he serves the hungry at his table. He serves the hungry. Boaz invites Ruth to sit with his guests for a meal. And the romance is just dripping here. Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied it's good and then he showers the needy with his grace just trying to make it interesting for those who did secret church of the date night tonight so <laughs> making sure making sure she goes home with as much as possible she's literally covered with food for weeks now when she gets back naomi finds out whose field ruth's been in in chapter two and she's ecstatic 
She knows that Boaz, the kinsman redeemer, I've used that language. What is the kinsman redeemer? God had set up a law where kinsmen would take care of his fa- relative's family if something happened to that relative. If somebody died, then the next kinsman could redeem, purchase, acquire everything that belonged to that person, including, including their family. Part of the purpose was to make sure the family was cared for. And Naomi knows that Ruth has just been treated to a feast with a kinsman redeemer. So she goes from bitterness to blessedness real quick. Could it be that in your sorrow and in your suffering, God is actually plotting for your satisfaction? So Naomi springs into action in chapter 3, becomes a matchmaker, tries to set Ruth and Boaz up. Long story short, after a shady night on the threshing floor in Ruth chapter 3, it is discovered that there is one kinsman who is closer than Boaz who has the right to redeem. Which we get to the price of a kinsman redeemer. In order for a kinsman redeemer to redeem family or property, he had to have three things. One, he must have the right to redeem, must be a near relative. Two, he must have the resources to redeem, able to pay the price. And third, he must have the resolve to redeem. So in chapter four, Boaz confronts this other dude. He doesn't have the resolve to redeem Naomi and Ruth. So in chapter four, nine and 10, Boaz buys everything that belongs to Elimelech. And as part of this, he brings Ruth the Moabite to be his wife. They get married, and they have a son named Obed, which brings to the resolution of the whole story. Let me show you Obed in redemptive history. You read Ruth chapter 4. Boaz took Ruth. She became his wife. He went to her. The Lord gave her conception. She bore a son. The women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nurturer of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They called it named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez and all the way down to David. See the picture here. God brings his people from death to life. Book of Ruth opens with three funerals. It closes with a wedding and a baby. Death has given way to life in the hands of the Almighty. God brings his people from curse to blessing. Chapter 1, Naomi has the curse of all curses, a widow with no heir. Chapter 4, she's holding the heir in her hands as the women call it blessing on her. God brings his people from bitterness to happiness. Can't you just see the smile on Naomi's face here? She looks down at Obed. Don't call me bitter anymore. Call me blessed. He brings his people from emptiness to fullness. At the end of chapter 1, Naomi opens her hands to the women of Bethlehem and says, I have nothing. At the end of chapter 4, she folds up her arms around a precious little baby as the women of Bethlehem say, you have everything. And God brings his people from despair to hope. And the book of Ruth ends not with looking back to an unbearable past, but looking forward to an unbelievable future. And this is where we're reminded of that this story doesn't end in Ruth chapter 4. Fast forward me to Matthew chapter 1. Next time Ruth and Boaz are in the Bible. Matthew 1, 6, Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king, leading ten verses later to Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. The story of Ruth is ultimately pointing us to Jesus in redemptive history. He is our redeemer. He alone is able to pay the price for our salvation. He alone is able to guarantee the promise of our restoration. In him we have redemption through his blood. So we come to these conclusions. One, God is committed to sovereignly providing for his people. He is the almighty, Ruth chapter 1, who is sovereign over everything. Don't lose sight of the fact that he is sovereign. He is sovereign over every setback. Famine, death, food, family, months of waiting, nervous night, near kinsmen, childless womb. God's sovereign over it all. And he is sovereign over all suffering. We may not understand why. We may not understand how the things will ever change. We may see little, no, little to no hope on the horizon, but know this, in every setback we face, God is ultimately plotting for our good so that we know, even when we cannot understand His manner, we can always trust His mercy. His path to our joy is not always smooth. His path to our joy is not always straight. But ladies and gentlemen, His path to our joy is always satisfying. 
I put here a hymn from William Cowper. Long story short, Cowper came to know Christ in an insane asylum. He suffered through bouts with deep depression in all of his life. When he came to Christ, he discovered that amidst darkness in life, when he faced clouds of trial and difficulty, he discovered those same storm clouds in the end rained down showers of mercy and grace. So he wrote this hymn called God Moves in Mysterious Way. His wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep and unfathomable minds of never-failing skill. He treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign well. You fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purpose will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. Ruth, the sovereign mystery of surprising mercy. On to 1 Samuel 17, our champion in battle. This is a story that... It's likely to be familiar to many of you, David and Goliath. We'll go through it quickly, but just think about how it relates to our understanding of suffering. Remember, there's three facets of this story. An invincible character, an impossible challenge, and an improbable champion. So you, you put that, well, and, and that improbable champion, passionate for the glory of God and confident in the power of God. So impossible challenge, improbable champion. Passion for the glory of God, confident in the, in the power of God. Now, if we're not careful, we'll just look at this story on its base level. We'll miss hard the point. Three levels of the story I want you to see. First, on the level of individual history. Just like we mentioned, this story involves a character, Goliath. A challenge, defeat the giant. And a champion, David, the soon-to-be king. Right before David comes in 1 Samuel 17. and 1 Samuel 16, David was anointed by Samuel as the next king. So you've got individual history going on here. But take it up a notch and you go to national history. This is not just a story about David and Goliath. This is a story about Israelites and Philistines. God's people and their enemies. The character surrounding nations. The challenge delivered God's people. And the champion that God raises up for his people is David the shepherd king. But then take it up another level. We're doing kind of Google Earth right here. Now you're at the broad level. The grand scheme of redemptive history. This battle depicts a much fiercer character. Satan. And a much greater challenge. Destroy sin. And in it all a surprising champion. Jesus the savior king. Without question, part of the purpose, if not the purpose, of the story of David and Goliath is to show how God raises up an improbable champion from the family of Jesse to ultimately deliver his people from their enemies. So what does all that have to do with suffering? Three takeaways. One, we must live with passion for God's glory. The point of the story is not to be brave in the face of giants. The point of the story is to be passionate about the glory of God. In every problem we face, no matter what it is, family, work, personal life, more than we want our problems to go away, we want God's name to be glorified. And if that means the problem remains, then so be it. Our passion is not ultimately for safety, security, comfort, our plans. Our passion is your glory. And the problems that everyone of us is facing, let's pray that God would show His glory in them. In every problem we face, in every place we go. Second, we can live with confidence in His power. I remind you, brothers and sisters, the ultimate battle has already been fought and it has been won. Our improbable champion, a baby born in a manger, later crucified on a cross, has disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Satan has been defeated. And what this means in our battles with sin and suffering in this life, we do not fight for victory. Victory has been won. We fight from victory. And that's a huge difference. So let this truth seep into your mind. Because if that's not clear in your mind, you will experience... 
You'll not experience much victory in your life. You'll be confused and you'll be defeated in suffering, Christian, if you don't let this lodge deeply in your heart. You'll miss out on being on the front lines of mission because you'll be shirking back. When we fight, we're not trying to win. Those in Christ have won and our lives are enforcing the victory that's already been secured. He who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. And as a result... We will look to Jesus as our champion in every temptation and sin we encounter and in every trial and struggle we experience. We have no reason to hear. I want to group First and Second Samuel, First and Kings, First and Chronicles all together around the theme of sin and suffering. So see the seriousness of sin in the kings of Israel. Now this is David, unfortunately, in a different light. See sin's anatomy and what led to adultery with Bathsheba, the murder of her husband Uriah. See how sin appears so subtly in that story and it harms so deeply And it controls so quickly. And sin devastates so painfully. How did this happen? David, the king after God's own heart. Sin's anatomy. Sin's tragedy involves the defiance of God. Psalm 51. Against you, you only have I sinned. Defiance of God and the distress of men. The sins of the kings of Israel dominate the rest of Israel's history in the Old Testament. Consider the history of suffering in the people of Israel. Flowing from David to Solomon, then the king to king to king after that. Remember covenant chronology here. I put it, there's a united kingdom, 1 Kings 1 through 11. Saul, David, Solomon. But then after Solomon, kingdom was divided into a northern kingdom, southern kingdom. Northern kingdom Israel, southern kingdom Judah. Until the day when the northern kingdom was destroyed and the southern kingdom was taken captive. In the midst of all of that, look at covenant loyalty. Zero of the 19 northern kings follow the Lord. Eight of the 20 southern kings follow the Lord. The overwhelming majority of Israel's kings rebelled against God, leading to mammoth suffering among God's people. Covenant catastrophe, division, slaughter, destruction of Samaria, the northern kingdom by Assyria, and finally the fall of Jerusalem, southern kingdom, and Babylon. Sin appears subtly. It starts subtly, harms deeply, controls quickly, devastates painfully. Sin always brings suffering. Always. We're going to see this over and over again. God, help us to learn. Sin always brings suffering. Yet God is merciful. Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, the God who preserves his people. These books recount God's preservation and eventual restoration of his people back in Jerusalem after they experienced exile and suffering. So the plot that plays out here involves the return of the remnant to Jerusalem. When they get back, we see the rebuilding of the temple. That's what the book of Ezra is all about. After that, we see the rebuilding of the city walls. That's what Nehemiah is all about. So I put the structure of those two books in your notes. The point of all this is to show us that God will ultimately and providentially preserve his people for his glory. You look at these verses that I've listed here, and you will see God working behind the scenes in all this. Through pagan kings, amidst various circumstances, to preserve, restore his people. And all those, those, those passages... And even when you get to Esther and you don't even see the name of God mentioned, even when we cannot see God, we know He is still present. He's still working. Book of Ezra, people of God facing potential annihilation, extermination. You see all these people mentioned, but God is never mentioned by name. But it is clear that God raised up Esther for such a time as this to preserve God's people in the face of potential obliteration. These were not easy times for the people of God. They were extremely trying times for the people of God. But in the end of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, it is clear that even or especially when we suffer, God is still worthy. One of my favorite scenes is Nehemiah chapter 12 when they're rebuilding. They had been rebuilding the walls before that and they were being mocked by the nations around them. And one person even said, one leader of a nation around them said, if they rebuild those walls, a cat could not even walk on top of those walls. So you get to Nehemiah chapter 12 and the people of God, all of them climb on top of the walls with their instruments and they march around the walls singing loudly. That's what Nehemiah chapter 12 verse 43 says. Take that. God will show himself worthy through suffering. Thank you for listening. You can find more episodes from Secret Church and thousands of other free resources at Radical.net.